You're listening to a podcast from Columbia Christian Fellowship in Columbia, Pennsylvania. Our services are weekly at 10 a.m. We hope to see you there. prayed earlier our pastor is and Mrs. Smith are taking their September weekend at the beach so we have a guest speaker here today you've all seen him before and he gets better every time he speaks to us so we really appreciate uh Josh These things don't like each other. I'm hoping that was that. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. A little loud. I'll calm it down a little bit. Everybody clapped and thank you. Hopefully after this sermon, you guys will still be clapping with me because it's, this, I think, is going to be a definite um, challenge for a lot of us. If we can get the slide up there. Where's Barry at? Well, I'll, I'll talk a little bit until, until Barry gets back because the slide's not working up there. My sermon is on faith. And you know what's really weird is as I was doing a sermon, and I actually went to um, save it to my files. I did not the exact same sermon, but the same topic a year ago today. Not, not today, the 22nd of September. It's really weird how God works that out. And, and I was praying to God, and I was asking him, you know, what should I speak about? And the very first thing was forgiveness. And then later on, as I'm thinking about it, and I'm doing my research, and I'm looking up scriptures and stuff like that, all of a sudden, he was like, nah, change of plans, faith. That's what I want you to talk about today. And a lot of us, you know, when, when we try to understand something, we go to either the encyclopedia, the dictionary, or something like that. So faith in the dictionary is a complete trust or confidence in someone or something, a lot of us, I think we take this for granted, you know, so many times we go to sit down in a chair. Believe it or not, that's faith. That's faith that that chair is going to hold you up, that nothing's wrong with it. It's not broke. It's not damaged, you know, from somebody before we just go in and sit down. So faith is a, in a nutshell is complete trust. That means not wavering, not, you know, um, wondering can I trust this guy? Should I trust this person? Should I trust this thing? No, it's complete trust. You don't even think about it. You don't doubt it at all. How many people in our lives do we have that we can actually say for certainly that we completely trust them? No questions asked. No doubt, 100% trust. I'll bet if we really think about that, we can see that there aren't many. 
You know, we can go to family members and be like, oh, yeah, I trust, you know, I trust this person to take care of my kids. Or we can go to friends and be like, yep, I, I trust Brandon's um, advice on s certain circumstances. And not even doubt that they're going to give you something that's negative. I mean, if we really think about it, like, would that person take a bullet for me in a, cer in a certain circumstance? Um, would they give me sound direction that had no negative consequences whatsoever? I wonder how long our list would be if we actually sat down and made a list. I, for certain, know that there is one name that will be on that list. Let's see if we can figure out who it is together. So in the beginning, if you go to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 12.10, at that time a severe famine struck the land of Canaan, forcing Abram to go down to Egypt where he lived as a foreigner. All right? Why would God send Abram to Canaan or a certain land and then allow that land to be struck by a famine? You would think, you know, God would take care of everything. When the famine struck, Abram went to Egypt where there was, where there was food. So God allowed the famine to, be stri to streak, strike Canaan, but he also made a place for Abram to go. Why would, a God, why would God allow the famine in the land where he had just called Abram? This was a test of Abram's faith. And Abram passed. He followed God. He didn't question God's leading when facing this difficulty. He didn't pray to God. and He probably did pray to God and say, why? But he just went. He didn't, you know, be like, okay, Egypt. Yeah, okay, well, how about we just go over here to Eastotopia or something like that. He went to Egypt. He didn't question God. Many of us believers find that when we determine to follow God, they immediately encounter great obstacles. How many of us have given our life to God? I know I have. When I got saved, the night I got saved, it was, I believe, April 7th, or April, April 9th, I believe. I got saved. We were down at Grace C.C., I prayed to God. You know, I gave my life to God. My cousin and I were going to go to church the next day. So rather than her coming the whole way down to Columbia to pick me up, to take me up to E-Town to go to church up there, I said, why don't you come down and get me tonight, and, you know, I'll spend the night at your house, and we'll go to church in the morning. So she did. On the way to her house in E-Town, we got into a car accident. I was in the hospital that night. And then the next day I got out. But I, had saw, I saw Hub at CVS, and he asked me, he was like, are you okay? Did this deter you at all? And I said no. Because I know God was there, God saved me. It was Satan trying to turn me back away from God because I'm a new believer. That was the faith that I had in God. God protected me. A lot of times... Satan will do that, or as new believers, we will give our lives to God, we will determine to follow him, and then all of a sudden, like a domino effect, these things start to go wrong in our life. The next time we face such a challenge, don't second guess if God is there with you or what he's doing. Use the intelligence God gave you, as Abraham did, 
when he temporarily moved to Egypt and wait for new opportunities. A lot of times we, we grumble and we complain about certain circumstances in our life, and we're so focused on that negativity, that thing that's going wrong, that we lose sight of what God is actually trying to do in our life through this circumstance. Moving on in the Bible, Exodus. They're already in Egypt, okay? Now they became slaves in Egypt. Now God freed them from Egypt and moved them out. But the people complained. Exodus 14, 11, 12. And they said to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. At the time, the Israelites were so focused on their hardship when they left. This is the first instance of grumbling and complaining by the Israelites. Up until then, you know, they thought they had it pretty easy, other than being slaves and stuff like that. It's so easy for us to fall into complacency, to look at our lives and be like, you know what, this is the best job I'm going to have, you know, I'll just, I'm just going to have to make do. Okay, I'll cut my finances back, I'll do this, it's not going to get any better. For the Israelites, grumbling would become a major problem for them on their journey. Think about it. They spent 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness, walking around, the whole time grumbling and complaining. Do you think that's a coincidence? Their lack of faith in God was startling. God chose them. They were his chosen people. That's like having a favorite child, I believe. I think, anyways. You have a favorite child, that child, that favorite child is going to pretty much follow you no matter what. Because they know that your favor is on them. How often do we find ourselves doing the same thing? Complaining over inconveniences or discomforts. The Israelites were about to learn some tough lessons. 40 years, 40 years in the desert. I was talking to someone at a party. My wife actually kind of got me into talking to this guy by, uh, how would I, for a better word of, she tricked me. But this guy was an atheist, and he saw a tattoo on Corinne, and he asked her about the tattoo, and he knew the Bible. He was very knowledgeable in the Bible, and he was like, well, that's against the Bible. We're in the Bible. It says in the Bible you can't tattoo yourself. You're not supposed to mark your body and all this. We got into a big, long discussion. And believe me, God had, God had me, and the Holy Spirit was definitely upon me because any other time I would have talked, to, I would have been like, you know what, screw you. I don't need to talk to you and walk away. But I sat there and talked probably about for a half hour, 45 minutes, trying to convince him why God was real and how God, why God put certain things in the Bible. But he said he did research on the walk from Egypt, where the Israelites were, to the promised land that God had given them. It was a 24-hour march. If you would walk it, it would take you 24 hours. He was so wrapped around why it took 40 years when it could have took 24 hours. 
And I tried to explain to them, they weren't ready. God confused them and got them lost and made them wander around until they were ready. A lot of us, when we have kids that complain about stuff or don't listen, we set them in timeout, correct? You know, timeout can be five minutes. It could be three minutes. Rule of thumb that I've heard as a parent, which I don't know, it's a minute for every year they're old. So if they're two years old, you set them timeout for two minutes. I think it should be hours, just, just so you know. Because I got the older ones that really need to sit down for a, you know, a few hours. Um... But 40 years, so the more they complained and, uh, and grumbled, God kept them lost in the wilderness. God says in the Bible that the Bible is the same then, now, and in the future. So when we complain and grumble, do we really expect a different outcome than what the Israelites faced? You know, we grumble and we complain, but we expect the God just to answer us like that and change it. Instead, we have to trust God. If they had trusted God, they would have been spared much grief. They would have gotten to the promised land a lot quicker, I feel. Now, in Deuteronomy, they finally get to the promised land. Deuteronomy 1.22, But you all came to me and said, First, let's send out scouts to explore the land for us. They will advise us on the best route to take and which towns we should enter. The scouts had been sent to the land not to determine whether they should enter, but to gain knowledge to determine how they should enter. God had already given them the land. God said, this is your home. This is, I'm giving this land to you. He didn't, ask, he didn't ask their permission. He didn't say, hey. Do you want to go look at this land, see if this is what you want? Maybe, you know, I can find something else for you. He already knew that that land was theirs. That land was going to be beneficial for them. It was going to provide for them, and they were going to be safe. Upon returning, however, most of the scouts had concluded that the land was not worth the obstacles. It wasn't worth their travel. They felt that the land wasn't good enough for them. God had given it to him. How do you think, okay, we, we, tell, we say God is our father. How would we feel that if we gave a kid a car or something like that and they went and looked at the car and they're like, eh, the tires are a little bald, started up, and eh, the engine doesn't sound like I want it. You know what I mean? It's not the right collar. How do you think we would feel? A little turned off, a little irritated, you know, I'm giving this car to you for free and you want to complain about it. How do you think God felt when he looked down on the scouts and he heard them complaining, saying, oh, this isn't a good, you know, this isn't a good land for us? God would give the Israelites the power to conquer the land, but they were afraid of the risk and decided not to enter. If they would have had faith that God was with them, God was going to protect them, God was giving them this land, they wouldn't have doubted it. They would have just followed and went. God gives us the power to do what he called us to do. But just as the Israelites were filled with fear and skepticism, we often let difficulties control our lives. A lot of times 
like I'm in situations at work where, you know, we pull into a job and the boss has given us this job of this tree to take down. And I look at it and be like, well, I can't really set my crane up here because of this tree and this and this. I'm looking at how I would do it, not how he would do it. And then as I look around and I walk around and I investigate a little more, I see what he was thinking. And it's a viable solution. It's how he wanted it done. When we follow God, regardless of these difficulties, we demonstrate courageous, overcoming faith. Instead of praying and getting an answer from God and then looking at that answer and being like, well, I know you told me to go down here to the rescue mission, God, on Saturday and help out and talk to these people, but I really don't have the gas to do that or the time, so how about we pick another Saturday? You know, let me, let me save up for it. Let me plan this out. That's not God. what God wants. God wants unwavering, unskeptical faith. When he calls us to do something, he wants us to jump and do it. That was the beginning. That's learning all about what faith is. Now is the middle. In Acts 5, 17, 18, the high priest and his officials, who were the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. This is after Jesus has died. You know, the apostles are speaking out, talking about God and stuff like that. He was talking about Jesus. The apostles experienced power to do miracles. God gave them the ability to do miracles, to fulfill their purpose on earth, just as Jesus done. Jesus was the example, and now the apostles got to follow their footsteps. He gave them the power to do miracles, great boldness in preaching, God's presence in their lives, and yet they were not free from hatred and persecution. How often do we go through lives and, you know, we get in a certain circumstance where we can speak to someone about God. God opens the door, you know, you know there's that little flame there that they want to know more. But yet we look at it and be like, you know, I really, I don't get along with this guy. Why should I talk to him? Or, well, we shouldn't really be talking about this at work. They frown about talking about religion at work. I really shouldn't do this. I might get in trouble. Back then, they knew that they were going to go to jail. They knew there was, a, there was a definite possibility that if they spoke out against the Pharisees and stuff like that, they spoke about Jesus, they told others the truth that they were going to go to jail. And they were arrested. They were put in jail. They were beaten and slandered by the community leaders. Faith in God does not make troubles disappear. It makes troubles up here less frightening because it puts them in the right perspective. If we know that we're doing right, if we know that we're doing something wrong, we get that guilty conscience, correct? We shouldn't be doing this. I I really shouldn't do this. There's consequences. I know I'm going to do this. When we get right feelings of speaking to people, we know it's right. We know it's from God. There's still those thoughts in there. Well, if I do this, though... I could go to jail, I could be, you know, fired from my job and stuff like that. Complete faith is listening to God, doing it. If you lose your job, 
that job wasn't for you. That's not where God wanted you. God probably put you in that place at that time to speak to that person, to follow, get them to follow God, to save them. And now that you did that, your purpose in that position is no longer needed. God's going to put you somewhere else that you are needed. We don't think about that, though, as humans. We think about, hey, I'm in this nice, cushiony job. I, got, I finally got benefits. I got my vacation. You know, I get to spend more time with family and stuff like that. I really don't want to lose this for that one person. But yet, God tells us in the Bible, the shepherd leaves his flock of 99 to go save the one sheep. That one sheep is more important than those 99. Those 99 are already safe. We are already saved. That job is not going to save us. That job is not going to get us to heaven. But we have to have faith that God has a purpose for everything that he does in our lives. Don't expect everyone to react favorably when you share something as dynamic as your faith in Jesus. Especially in a world as it is today, people need to hear about Jesus even more. With everything that's going on with the, with the, with the COVID-19, with governments, with other countries and stuff like that, the world needs to hear about Jesus now more than ever. Some will mock you. Some will envy the joy you have. Some will feel threatened. And some will just be interested. We are to expect negative reactions. When our parents told us stuff that we didn't want to hear, it kind of made us feel uncomfortable or, you know, we kind of lashed back out at them and stuff like that. Kids still do today. Who has young children here? And when you tell them to do something, they lash back at you. No, I don't want to do that. I don't believe that. We still have it today. We respect, we're told to expect negative reactions, but we're to remember that you must be more concerned about serving God than about the reactions of other people. If we're living for God, that's the one we should be focused on. Not the people that are around us that dictate our earthly life now, our bosses, you know, our friends, family. No, I, I know Corinne hates this about me, but I don't care what anybody thinks about me. Not even my own family, apparently. I know what, I feel what God thinks about me. I want to make sure that I do everything I can to get to heaven. In the Old Testament, we have to understand that our um, relationships on earth that we get into also affect our faith. So the people of Israel, in Judges 3, 5 through 7, so the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, Hivites, Hivites. Listen, somebody's really got to talk about the people that make this Bible and maybe make, change these names a little bit to make them a little easier to understand. Jebusites, and they intermarried with them. Israelite sons married their daughters, and Israelite daughters were given in marriage to their sons. And the Israelites served their gods. 
The Israelites discovered that relationships affect faith. Who we hang out with, who we marry, and stuff like that affects us. A lot of us, even growing up, you'll see it in little kids, that they get into a group of friends and they start to do the things those friends do, even if they know it's wrong, because they want to fit in. They want to be in that group. The Israelites are doing the same thing. They married these foreign, pagan-worshipping people, and because they were in that relationship, they started to serve their gods. God told them, serve no other god but me. God is the only God. All the other ones are false idols. They're false. They're make-up. They're make-believe. And yet the Israelites still didn't have faith in God and started worshiping their gods. The way of life, the way of life of the men and women of the surrounding nations were attractive to the Israelites. Soon they intermarried with the Canaanites and the Israelites accepted their pagan gods. This was clearly prohibited by God. I just want to see something real quick. Yes. In Exodus 34, 15 through 17, the Old Testament, you must not make a treaty of any kind with the people living in the land. God had already seen that this was going to be a problem. He knows everything before it happens, correct? He already knew this was going to be a problem, and he told him about it ahead of time. You must not make a treaty of any kind with people living in the land. A treaty, what is marriage? You get a marriage certificate, correct, when you go to get married? You say vows for better or for worse, blah, blah, blah. In the end, that you say, I do. It's like signing your signature. That is a contract between you and your spouse. They lust after their gods, offering sacrifices to them. They will invite you to join them in their sacrificial meals, and you will go with them. He's telling them already what's going to happen. Then you will accept their daughters. You sacrifice to other gods as wives for your sons. You will, and they will seduce your sons to commit adultery against me by worshiping other gods. You must not make any gods of molten metal or your, for yourselves. He already told them what's going to happen. They already knew the signs to look out for. If they had faith to trust God, they would have seen this already. In Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4, actually 3 through 4 I have here, you must not intermarry with them. Do not let your daughters and sons marry their sons and daughters, for they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and he will quickly destroy you. So he's already told them what's going to happen, and he told them the consequence. That'd be like going to go commit a bank robbery and... You already know you're going to go to jail, and now they're telling you when you go in, the teller's going to be like, you know you're going to go to jail, and you're going to do seven to ten years for this already, so you really want to do this? God already gave it to them. He already told them what was going to happen in the consequences. By bringing these gods into their homes, the Israelites gradually began to accept the sinful practice associated with them. I know some of us have been in relationships where 
we see that the other person really isn't right for us, but we really like that person, and we're like, okay, we're, I'm going to date them. It's, it's good. Maybe I can change them to be more like what God wants them to. I can do this. It's a challenge. I, I, I know I can do it. I really like this person. And yet, after we go months and years into the relationship, we start to change because we have feelings for that person or whatever. We start to change to accept what they like. That's not what God wants us to do. What's the best way to get out of that circumstance? To have faith in God and to wait until he puts that relationship in your life where your beliefs match. They, they go together like a puzzle perfectly. You don't have to, you know, flip this puzzle piece around and try and jam it in there to get it to fit. It fits perfectly. Most Israelites didn't start out determined to be idolaters. They just added idols to the worship of God. Well, I'm going to worship God, but, you know, I'm going to put this little, this is God now, this little calf here. That's, that, that's going to represent God. Next thing you know, the wife starts calling that calf Baal, and now you're saying, okay, well, God's name is Baal now. I'm just changing his name a little bit. We think it's innocent, but God said, I am their only God. Make no false idols about me. He didn't tell them exactly what idol to worship because he doesn't want an idol. It's his name that we worship. But before long, they found themselves absorbed in pagan worship. A similar danger faces us when we look at how cultural influences shape us today. The government. Say we got to get vaccines. They're mandating that anybody, 100 employees and above, needs to get vaccines and stuff like that. They're already starting to try to change how we think. A lot of, a lot of people that I know and myself in particular, I don't believe in the vaccine. I have faith that if God wanted me to get COVID, I'm going to get COVID. If he doesn't want me to get COVID, I'm not going to get COVID. Yes, there are other circumstances out there, but... God has it in his hands. The Israelites were heavily influenced to turn from God through their relationships with the Canaanites. Today we are especially vulnerable to the influences of our ungodly culture through our relationships with the media, technology. Can we completely trust that the media is telling us 100% truth? I can say my aunt believe it or not, believes this. She thinks that the media cannot lie. They have to tell the truth. No matter what, they have to tell the truth. That is a... Um, like I was talking about the relationships, look at that. That's a thing between my uncle and my aunt now, which my aunt, it's my aunt by birth and my uncle by marriage, they're fighting about. He doesn't believe in the vaccine. She's talking about getting the vaccine. He doesn't want my cousin Tyler to get the vaccine at all but she's saying well when he turns 12 he may have to get it because of school and stuff like that that's that's causing a, a conflict I know it doesn't have to do with God but that's how relationships can control our lives even unbelievers they can control their lives what's not to say that it can't control ours 
Although our phones and computers connect us to others in helpful ways, they can also be unhealthy, addicting, and open us up to ungodly behaviors before we realize it. A lot of us spend so much time on our phones looking at, you know, Facebook, social media, stuff like that. We start getting other people's ideas put in our heads by reading it. You know, we know what God tells us, and then now this person says something, and this person backs it up, and then this person backs it up. Well, maybe that is true, although God's telling me this. Now we start to doubt God. So that starts to become a hindrance in our faith and our following God. This doesn't mean we should avoid using new technology, but we need to be discerning about when and where and how much we use them. If we hear something or we see something that goes against what we feel God is telling us, we need to pray about it. Pray and ask God for his wisdom and his guidance in this certain circumstance. Go to the Bible. Oftentimes in the past I used to be going through something in my head or in life and I would just take the Bible and I'd be like, okay, God, I need you to speak to me. I'd open it up and I'd just start reading. And within, I would say, a couple chapters maybe, I would get the answer through the Bible or exactly how I should handle the situation. It is important for believers to engage the broader culture, but we must take note of who is influencing whom. Are they influencing us and turning us away from our faith in God and us following God? Or are we influencing them to turn from their ways, their believing the government, the you know, social media, the ungodly and stuff like that? Or are we starting to turn them towards God? We should be friendly without compromising or adopting ungodly patterns of behavior. God tells us to love everyone. We should. We should love everyone. We do not have to like what they're doing. We don't have to like what they're saying or how they're acting. But we should still love them, and we should still try to get them to see the truth. Now, I'm not saying walk up to somebody and hit them over the head if they're not listening, and then when they wake up, be like, see, I told you, you got to start following God. No. But we can talk to them. I mean, sometimes that probably is more effective. If you hit them hard enough, they might have amnesia and be like, oh, hey, this guy is telling the truth. But you you got to be kind and do it in a way that they're not going to shun you or be like, you know, this guy's really pushy. Man, he is definitely a zealotter after this guy. I, I'm going to stay away from him. you got to give them enough and make it nice enough and pleasurable enough that they're like, you know, this guy... This guy could be on to something. I'm going to go home and start reading my Bible a little bit and see what, see what I can find out about this. Or, hey, maybe, maybe on my lunch break tomorrow, I'll talk to him a little bit more about this and see, you know, what, what he, what's going on. Now, we talked about the Old Bible, the Old Testament, and how God led the Israelites what he told them to do, how the Israelites went against God somewhat and hindered their faith and what God wanted them to do. Then we got to the middle on how we should act and how we should be with God and others. Now comes the test. Don't you guys hate that? We're all out of school now, right? Who wants to learn something and then get tested on it afterwards? 
but that's life. Job. Everybody knows the story of Job, right? I'm not going to read the whole story. I have it here. Chapters 1, 1 through 2.13. Everybody knows the story of Job. Husbands, pay attention because we're going to relate to this. I know we are. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. Well, that's not bad, right? He did everything God wanted him to do. He believed in God. He followed God. He was blameless. He had integrity. He stayed away from evil things. Ah, there's a catch. Job was a man that had complete faith in God and followed him completely. Even after, this is the kicker here, he followed God completely. But he lost all his farm animals, his employees, the people, the shepherds that were watching after the sheep and the people who were watching after the camels and the cattle and all this stuff. He lost children, all of his children. He was struck with boils from head to toe. Okay, now after all of this, right, that's a lot for one person to take. Don't you think that would have been harsh enough? But he also had a wife nagging him about his faith and his integrity to God in the end. But yet he was still faithful to God. How many of us go to work during the day and, you know, we're going to work and there's something wrong with the car maybe by the time we get to work. Then we get to work and something on the project went wrong. Now the boss is coming to us, yelling at us because Jimmy couldn't do what he was told, but you're in charge of Jimmy. So then now you got to deal with that problem. And then on the way home, now you're low on gas. So you pull into a gas station. That gas station's pumps aren't working. So now you got to go to another gas station and pray to God that you make it there so you can get gas. Only to get home and your wife meets you at the door, what are you doing? What took you so long? You're supposed to go do this, and you're supposed to go do that. That's a lot for one guy to handle, isn't it? And yet, we still have to have faith in God. That all happened for a reason. Believe me, I pray about it every day. Why? I wish I had the amount of faith and control that Job had. Job could have lashed out. His wife wanted him to. His wife said, I don't have it on here. His wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? Just give up. But Job knew that he had, he had complete faith in God. This was happening for a reason. And in the end, he got everything back sevenfold. Everything. There's only one thing that I probably wouldn't want to do or wouldn't want to happen to me afterwards. But you got to think, if he had, we'll say, seven children, sevenfold means that he had 49 children by the time it was said and done and God gave him everything back. I'm sorry, the four I have now is a handful. I don't know if I could do I don't know if I could do good with 28 of them. But God had a plan, God had a reason though. There was a reason he had those kids. In 2 Kings 4:6, 
the wife of the widowed woman and her two sons. Soon every container was, was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. Does anybody not know this story? I can give you a quick recap. Everybody knows the story of Elisha and the widow and the two sons? Her husband died. The um, debt collector was going to come and take her two sons as slaves, and she couldn't pay him. So Elisha said, what do you have in the house? And she says, I have some oil that they sell for like burning candles and, or burning lanterns and stuff like that. He said, go get me jars. The woman and her sons collected jars from their neighbors, pouring olive oil into them from their one flask. They had a small flask of oil. And they got five, we'll say five-gallon buckets. And they were pouring this flask, and it did not stop. It kept filling bucket after bucket after bucket up. The olive oil was used for cooking, for lamps, and for fuel. The oil stopped pouring only when they ran out of containers. It would have kept going if they would have had like a diesel truck or something like that. Probably, they could have probably filled them all up. The number of jars they gathered was an indication of their faith. They had faith in God. They knew that that flask was going to fill up whatever they could get because it was coming from God. God's provisions was as large as their faith and willingness to, ob to be obedient. We think that God can only give us so much because that's what he wants to do. He wants to give us abundantly more than what we actually want. Oh, man, I really shouldn't have said I only wanted four kids. Ooh, I might have bit that one off. Beware of limiting God's blessings by a lack of faith and obedience. A lot of times we want certain things, but we're like, oh, well, God's only, God will probably only give me this much, so that's all I'm going to ask for. We can't limit God's ability. God is, there is no limit to God. He's bigger than anything. Any number you can imagine, anything you can possibly imagine, God's bigger than that. We have a great king. Because he loves us, we can bring great requests to him. Nothing is too big for God. God is able to do infinitely more than we can ask, think, or imagine. So why do we hold out then? Why do we hold out in asking God for things? Do we feel that we are not worthy? God tells us in the Bible we're worthy. We are his chosen people. He put us on earth so he could take care of us, so we could worship him love him, and he could love us in return. So why do, we, why do we doubt him? Daniel 3, 16 through 18. Here's these names again that I will never name my kids, by the way. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. See, I can get that one. Nebuchadnezzar, that's a long one, and I still got it. We do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom you serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power. 
Your majesty, he will rescue us. The God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. How many of us can be threatened to be put to death, to be burned alive, and say, you know what, it's good, God got me, and if he doesn't, I'm ready. I'd like to say I am, and I am right now standing up here in this nice, cool sanctuary and stuff like that, but I think if I'm going to be this close to fire, I'm hoping, I'm praying my faith is enough to say, you know what, go ahead, I'm good. Yeah, it's, it's a little sweaty in here, but I'm good. God got me. Those three were ordered to deny God, but they chose to be faithful to him no matter what happened. They were confident that God could deliver them, but they were determined to be faithful regardless of the consequences. Even if it threatened their personal safety. Again, how many of us have opportunities to talk to people at work, to express our love for God, to try and talk to them about God, and yet we worry about the consequences of losing our job? We lose our job, we're not going to have the money coming in, how am I going to pay the bills? We worry about all that stuff. When there's only one thing we should be worrying about, that person's soul, and whether they're saved or not, and they go to heaven. Now, I'm not saying go out tomorrow when you go back to work and go up to somebody and be like, hey, how are you? Do you want to talk about God? And your boss comes up and be like, you know what? Don't talk to me right now. I'm, I'm doing this. You got you to gotta try to work it out nicely, but yet understand that there could be circumstances there. God will give you the, the courage to do what you need to do. You just have to have the faith to listen to him to pray for that strength and that guidance. God will protect us, rescue us, and answer our prayers in the way we desire. But Jesus taught that his followers would often find trouble while in the world for their faithfulness. Only in heaven before God will we finally have complete peace and healing. Just look at that. In the Bible, it says that he will not come back until everyone on earth has heard about him, has had a chance to choose between God or hell. So this promise of us being in heaven and having complete peace and, he peace and healing will not happen until we do our part and we speak to others and we have faith to teach them to have faith. We are to remain faithful as these three men did and cling to the hope that God will walk with, you, with us through the fire. He's always with us no matter what. So we can't say once we go to work, God's not there anymore because he is. Our eternal reward will be the confirmation that any suffering we had to endure on earth was worth it and we don't have to deal with it anymore in heaven. Genesis 15, 6. We go back to Abram. Abram believed that the Lord, the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. 
Although Abram had been demonstrating his faith through his actions, it was his belief in the Lord that made him right with God. Not his actions that made Abram right with God, yes. We too can have a right relationship with God by trusting him. Our outward actions, although they are all good, our church attendance, our prayers, our act of service, will not by themselves make us right with God. A right relationship is based on faith, complete faith. The heartfelt inner confidence that God is who he says he is and does what he says he will do. The right actions will follow naturally as byproducts. So if we think about that, we say our faith is so powerful, we have so much faith in God, and yet our actions, do they depict that faith in God? When we think about our faith and we think about our actions and what we do throughout our day from the time we wake up until the time we go to bed, our every action of every day, does that depict the huge amount of faith that we believe we have? Or does it show us in reality how little faith we have? In Genesis 50, 24, Soon I will die, Joseph told his brothers, but God will surely come to help you and lead you out of this land of Egypt. He will bring you back to the land he solemnly promised to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph was ready to die. He knew he was dying. He knew he was gone. He knew he was going to heaven. He knew he was going to be with God. But he was telling his brothers to have faith. Know that God is going to be with you. God is going to do what he told you to do. He had no doubts that God would keep his promise and one day bring the Israelites back to their homeland. No doubt at all. Even though he was dying and he knew he was gone, he still had faith. He was still worried about his brothers and the Israelites on what they were get in the future but he knew that God was going to be with them. What a tremendous example of how we should live our lives. Complete faith. We know that everything's going to be all right. Even though we go through circumstances, things break down on us, people are angry with us, people try to persecute us and make fun of us or whatever, but we know that in reality, everything will be all right. The secret of that kind of faith is a lifetime of trusting God. It's not, you know, a, a three-day here and a two-day here, you know, with a couple unbelief days in between. It's a complete, lifelong, second-by-second second, trust in God. And our faith, like a muscle, it grows with exercise, gaining strength over time. Our faith gets better, gets bigger, gets stronger as we practice it, as we read our Bibles, as we pray, and as we trust in the Lord. After a lifetime of exercising trust, your faith can be as strong as Joseph's. 
then at your death, you can be confident that God will fulfill all his promises to you and to all those faithful to whom you may live, who may live after you. So when we're on our deathbed and we have that lifelong faith, we can confidently say that God's going to protect everybody. Our children that are still alive, our grandchildren that are still alive, our brothers, our nieces, our nephews, everybody that we've come into contact with, our church family, we have complete confidence. We can die peacefully knowing that God has them all in control, that he has their lives, and he is confident and he is trustworthy to take care of them. So after going through the scriptures and talking a lot about faith, that one name on our list that we can confidently say is going to be there, it was mine, right? Did everybody get that? No? Okay. It's God's. We know that that one name, no matter what list we make, that one name is God will always be there for us, no matter what. We just have to step outside of our human nature, of our prideful selves, and rely on him. Too often times we, we try to do things ourselves. I can get this job, it's no problem, I just got to go in here and I got to smooth the guy, you know, if he likes coffee, but I don't really like coffee, I'm going to drink it because that's what he wants. Too often we give in to our human desires to get what we want, and we don't have faith in God, we don't listen to God, and we don't put his will in our lives. We do what we want, not what God wants. My challenge for each of us, especially me, is to start living for God. Do what God wants. Don't worry. I'm not saying to just blow everybody off. Believe me, that doesn't work good in relationships. If anybody has any questions about that, you can talk to Corinne afterwards because she will tell you exactly what not to do. It's mostly what I do. But it's to have complete faith in God and do what God wants you to do without doubt, without worrying about what other people are going to think. But yet do it in a way that you're not going to burn your relationship with those people. You're not going to go against what God wants but you're also going to relate a message to them that God is real. There are things to live for on, the, on earth, and there is a way to get to heaven, and that is complete faith in God. Thank you. As the band's coming forward, we want to thank Josh. Uh, there's one thing I want to share uh, from uh, the message. Uh, all, all you men that he was talking about, you husbands that were, you know, got, uh, had a bad day at work and uh, got to the gas station, things didn't go right. And you walked in the door and your wife said, where have you been? Just remember that she's been home with the screaming children and the 
dishwasher that didn't work, <laughs> and the toilet didn't work, and couldn't find the diapers because you had them. You forgot to go to the store. So whenever she says where you were at, just remember that she might have had a bad day too. <laughs> Father, we just want to thank you for this word that you gave Josh and that we all just take it to heart and hear what he says in all things. No matter what our day brings before us, no matter what the challenge, that we will trust in you and we will know that you are always in charge, that you always have control, and that bad things, you know, things that we're not necessarily ready for will happen, but we trust in you, Lord, and that's what it's all about, because you love us, and because you love us, that you will always be there for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our weekly message. To connect with us, visit our website at blesscolumbia.org.